Well, good morning, all. Let me invite you to remain standing as we prepare to hear God's Word. We are continuing our series in the book of Acts, the story of the church. We've seen how the Holy Spirit has empowered those first disciples and the church has grown exponentially, that Jesus is still at work in His world through His body, the church. And then last week, we saw Peter and John go into the temple. They saw a man who was born lame, and they raised him and picked him up, a miracle that God performed through them and by faith. But now we get to this passage in Acts chapter 4, and people are starting to pay attention to this upstart Jewish sect. And they're wondering, especially the leaders, why all of these people are listening to the apostles. Let's turn our attention now to Acts chapter 4, verses 1 through 31. And as Peter and John were speaking to the people, the priests and the captain of the temple and the Sadducees came upon them, greatly annoyed, because they were teaching the people and proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection from the dead. And they arrested them and put them in custody until the next day, for it was already evening. But many of those who had heard the word believed, and the number of the men came to about 5,000. On the next day, their rulers and elders and scribes gathered together in Jerusalem with Annas, the high priest, and Caiaphas, and John, and Alexander, and all who were of the high priestly family. When they had set them in their midst, they inquired, by what power or by what name did you do this? Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, rulers of the people and elders, if we are being examined today concerning a good deed done to a crippled man, by what means this man has been healed? Let it be known to all of you and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by him this man is standing before you well. This Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you, the builders, which has become the cornerstone. And there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved." Now when they saw the boldness of Peter and John and perceived that they were uneducated, common men, they were astonished, and they recognized that they must have been with Jesus. But seeing the man who was healed standing beside them, they had nothing to say in opposition. But when they had commanded them to leave the council, they conferred with one another, saying, "'What shall we do with these men? For that a notable sign has been performed through them is evident to all the inhabitants of Jerusalem, and we cannot deny it.' But in order that it may spread no further among the people, let us warn them to speak no, war to, no more to anyone in this name. So they called them and charged them not to speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus. But Peter and John answered them, whether it is right in the sight of God to listen to you rather than to God, you must judge, for we cannot but speak of what we have seen and heard. And when they had further threatened them, they let them go finding no way to punish them because of the people, for all were praising God for what had happened. For the man on whom this sign of healing was performed was more than forty years old. When they were released, they went to their friends and reported what the chief priests and the elders had said to them. And when they heard it, they lifted their voices together to God and said, Sovereign Lord, who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and everything in them, who through the mouth of our father David, your servant, said by the Holy Spirit, Why did the Gentiles rage? And the peoples plot in vain. The kings of the earth set themselves, and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against His anointed. For truly in this city there were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place." 
And now, Lord, look upon their threats and grant to your servants to continue to speak your word with all boldness while you stretch out your hand to heal and signs and wonders are performed through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. And when they had prayed, the place in which they were gathered together was shaken and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and continued to speak the word of God with boldness. This is the word of the Lord. Pray together. Father in heaven, we pray that you would send your Holy Spirit. Give us boldness, courage to speak your word, but first to hear it. Dig us deep ears so that we might hear and obey the things that you are saying to us. Help us to believe you and to believe the things here written. Speak through me and help me as well. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. Well, today is a really exciting day in the life of Redeemer Presbyterian Church for me personally because Holt and Hattie West are here. Holt and Hattie are coming to San Antonio, and Holt will be the next campus minister at Trinity University, and they're sitting right there. You all want to stand up for us? Please join us in praying for that ministry as they take over the reins at RUF at Trinity. We're excited for that. It's also really exciting for me personally because of a couple of things. Firstly, I was deeply blessed by the ministry of RUF at Trinity. That's where I did my undergraduate degree, and that's where I really grew in my faith. So I'm personally connected to that ministry. Secondly, Holt was in our youth ministry growing up here. If you haven't heard that, that is really exciting. I was his youth pastor, and he grew up here, and uh, now he gets to come back to us. That's cool, huh? The third reason I'm really excited is we need uh, an evangelistic presence on Trinity's campus. College is a really exciting time for the gospel to go forward. It's an important time, right? You show up to college and you are ready to hear new things. You're ready to be different. You've just come out from your parents, under your parents' thumbs, some of us, right? And you're like, okay, I'm ready to experience the world afresh. And as that is happening in our hearts and lives in college, It's always our prayer as parents, as people watching, that it wouldn't just be some of the ways of thinking of this world that comes upon a college student, but it's also a really great opportunity for a college student to say, now hold on a second, what is my life really about? Is it just about getting good grades and making money one day, or am I called to something more? We need to have the gospel on college campuses because it is the perfect time for a student to ask those questions and be met by the God with whom they have much to do. That was certainly my story. It was certainly my story. I went to college bright-eyed and bushy-tailed. I was excited about what was going to come next, and I decided to pursue a path in religion. That was my undergraduate degree, and I was ready to learn about God and to learn stuff about the Bible, but unfortunately, It was a difficult experience for me. It turns out that sometimes religion departments don't always uphold the truth or veracity of the Scriptures, the Bible. That was something that I had to learn firsthand. One of the low points for me was a gospel class my junior year. Two pastors taught the class, and so when I took it, I was excited, hopeful that I was going to learn some stuff about God and His Word. And then one day, they were explaining the interpretation of a passage, and I heard it, and I thought, I don't think that's what it says. So I raised my hand, and I said, you know, I, I, I think that the interpretation is this. And so I gave my interpretation. And I will never forget what the, one of the pastors said. He said, look, you're probably right that that's the best reading of the text as written, 
But people can't really believe that anymore. Ouch, you know? Look with me at verses 16 and 17. The Sanhedrin, that's the governing body of Israel. They're conferring together. What shall we do with these men, they say? For that a notable sign has been performed through them is evident to all the inhabitants of Jerusalem, and we cannot deny it. But that in order that it may spread no further among the people, let us warn them to speak no more to anyone in this name. Interesting, isn't it? Wherever and whenever the Word of God is read and heard, there is going to be opposition. Even if the interpretation is really good, even if the miracle is undeniable, there's going to be opposition to God's Word. It was promised to the disciples. Jesus said this in John 15, 20, "'Remember what I told you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they obeyed my teaching, they will obey yours also.'" What's true for first-century disciples is also true for 21st-century disciples. Rico Tice is a noted evangelist and writer, and he says this, "'Here's the thing.'" Jesus says we're sheep amongst wolves. The Bible tells us to answer those who attack us, but most books I've read on evangelism don't tell you that. There's always this suggestion that if you do evangelism in a certain way, if you learn to be, learn to be charming or funny or interesting as you share the gospel, you can avoid getting hit. And he says this, I want to be honest, if you tell non-Christians about Jesus, it will be painful. We can never lose sight as a church about our calling in this world. One of the main reasons that we exist as a church is to compel others into the freedom and the love and the forgiveness of sins and the joy that we have in God our Savior through Christ our Lord. We want people to know the freedom from sin that we've experienced, the joy that we have because we have a future and a hope the hope of eternal life. We want people to know about that, right? Don't we? We do. And if that's our heart's desire, we also need to be ready because we know that opposition will come. Opposition is going to come. As we share and embody the good news that we know, there's also exciting things for us too. God is going to deepen our faith. He's going to grow His church. He's going to invite other people into the life of Christ. Today, in order to get there, we have to ask this question. We have to ask the question, what does the opposition to the gospel look like? We're kind of going to ask that in two ways. We're going to look at the obstacles we face when we share the gospel, and then we're going to look at the plan or the path forward to share the gospel well in the midst of those obstacles. So, we're going to look at the obstacles we face, and then we're going to look at the path forward as we go past those obstacles, okay? So first, the obstacles we face. For context's sake, Peter and John are sharing with a large group of people in the temple. Just after that lame man who was over 40 years old, we're told in verse 22, has been healed by faith in Jesus. Of the thousands that had already received the Word of God, 2,000 more believe, and so now we've gone from 3,000 people who are following this new way of Christ to 5,000 people. This small band of disciples is really starting to upset the apple cart 
of the Jewish authorities. So amongst the crowds is also gathered a real who's who of the leadership of Israel. Verse 1, there were priests there. The captain of the temple, that's a Levite who controlled the club-wielding temple guards. The Sadducees are also there. Those are the high priestly class, the rich aristocrats of the time. Verse 5 gives us more details. There's rulers, elders, scribes. We even have the named members of the Jerusalem council. Annas, who was the ex-high priest, Caiaphas, his son-of-law, the current high priest, and two people that are kind of lost to history. We're not exactly sure who they are, John and Alexander, but whom the disciples would have clearly known. One of the things that's really interesting about all of these leaders who are now showing up and arrayed against Peter and John is that they're not actually always in agreement with each other over theological things. Verse 2 tells us that the Sadducees don't believe in the resurrection, or at least they're annoyed about it. But we actually know that some of the elders and scribes believed in the resurrection. There's division even on the council. They don't agree on everything. And yet they still find a way of sitting in the council together, believing themselves to be representatives of God and His plan on earth. Their problem with Peter and John then is not theological per se. Look at verses 13 and 14. The true source of their consternation is something else. They are annoyed that these guys are uneducated commoners, and yet they can't deny that God has truly done something miraculous through them. They had nothing to say in opposition, seeing the healed man standing before them. The problem that the rulers focus on was not the truth, it was not the healing, it was not the resurrection. Though those were un- informal causes, they particularly didn't like that these uneducated men were making them look bad. Doubtless, they had in their minds that guy Jesus who also made them look bad. He was an uneducated commoner from Galilee. He too was unlearned, but his words captured the crowds. His disputes had silenced them. They had nothing to say in opposition to them, and he literally turned the tables on them and those in power. This is really instructive for us. If you've received the gospel of Jesus, your life is on a different trajectory than the powers that be. Your internal motivation, the desires of your heart, no longer are turned towards the things of this world, but rather turned towards God and His desires for you. Excuse me. Whereas once you built your own kingdom, you now build Jesus' kingdom. The gospel changes our social life and our relationships and our fiscal priorities and our political engagement. And as a follower of Jesus, your life embodiment is like an embodiment of a completely alien set of principles to the people that we meet in this world. It's like the one sober guy in a group of drinking buddies, the one girl who starts spending less money on the girls' trips. It's like the person whose politics have changed. It's like the family who's dropped out of the activity for moral reasons. We might start sticking out like sore thumbs. Now, some people will see that and actually think that those convictions are beautiful. They might be captivated, interested, leaning in to know more. Why are you like this? I want to know. But there's also another reality 
some people will be repulsed by that. It's like your very life is a judgment on my life. I don't want to know about that. I want to excise you from my social group because you are a threat to me. Sometimes that repulsion moves a little deeper to opposition and outright persecution. Now, let's offer a quick word on persecution and what it is. Normally, Christians hear that and we think, preacher, don't talk about persecution. I mean, that's only really for like the lion's den, right? And I get it. Like, let's not play the victim card, you know? We're pretty well protected here in America, and thank God for that. We don't want to play the victim card. But at the same time, we need to recognize that we really do have opposition sometimes. It's okay to recognize that, right? Persecution, a simple definition of that is mistreatment on the basis of collective affinity, such as race, class, or religion. And I know that most of us at some point or another have felt that, and here's why. Because we feel pressure not to share our faith. You feel pressure not to share your faith sometimes? My guess is that most of us would answer somewhat true or mostly true to this statement. If I didn't fear some sort of social, economic, or reputational consequence, I would share my faith more. You feel that? I mean, I do. I know you probably do too. We may believe, verse 12, there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we may be saved but we struggle to live out those beautiful words in verses 19 and 20. Whether it is right in the sight of God to listen to you rather than to God, you must judge, for we cannot but speak of what we have seen and heard. It begs the question for us, doesn't it? Lord, what's holding me back from being forthright about my faith? Let's wrestle with that this week. Talk about it at home today. What's holding me back? Is it fear about what others will say or how they'll respond to me? Is it that you're unsure about the claims of Jesus' resurrection? Is it that you know the claims of Jesus mean that you have to live your life differently and you're not ready to do that? Like, I would talk about it, but people will think I'm a hypocrite because they see my life. That's a tension point, isn't it? There are internal reasons, there are external reasons, but let's bring it out in the open. I know we're not all called to be evangelists. There's a special gift of the Spirit for those who share the gospel. But if we can't at least talk about our core conviction, we really do need to look in the mirror and ask, why? Why is that? Because there is a warning that goes with it. Let's look at verse 7. The council asks, by what power or by what name did you do this? The you there is emphatic. It's like people like you, uneducated commoners like you. Peter responds with his own emphatic you. This Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you, the builders, which has become the cornerstone. Now, that's a direct quotation from Psalm 118 with that one personalized addition, you. He applies it to them in that day and age. In the original context, that psalm means that the Assyrians, the Babylonians, other people have basically looked at Israel and said, you're a stone that's to be rejected. And God said, no, 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 no. That stone, Israel, the people of God, is actually where I'm building my real temple presence in this world. But now, Peter and John place the rulers of Israel as the ones rejecting the stone. You rulers of Israel thought that Jesus was a stone to be discarded. 
But oh, how little you know, it's Him that's the real temple of God in this earth. Now, that's a warning for us religious people, I think. It's a warning for us, not just those religious people. One commentator writes perceptively, we must not fear persecution. Rather, we must seek to be faithful and guard against the temptation to tone down our gospel so that we become respectable and avoid persecution. Many older established churches have done this. They have downplayed the uniqueness of Christianity and beliefs that go against the grain of this pluralistic society. They have been able to maintain their respectability, but they've lost power and vitality. Lord, help each one of us to honestly own, champion, and courageously honor the gospel of Jesus. We can't water it down. We can't pretend that Jesus' ethics on sexuality, for instance, don't exist. We can't paper over some of the difficult beliefs, like the fact that He, I don't know, believed in hell. We can't tell people they don't have to pick up their cross. Jesus said it. Whatever obstacles are in the way of us sharing the gospel, Lord, may it not be me. Whatever obstacles are in the way of us sharing the gospel, Lord, may it not be me. So, talking a little bit about those obstacles that come, both from the outside and also from the inside, we have to ask, okay, well, what's the plan? How do I move forward with boldness and courage to actually be honest about my faith? Verses 23 and following give us some helpful principles. I'm just going to kind of go over them. Peter and John go back to their friends, and they talk about what they just faced. And I love that word, friends. Luke could have used a different word. He could have said, they go back to the congregation, they go back to the disciples, they go back to the group. He says, no, they go back to their friends. Whatever opposition and difficulty they faced out there, at least they had safety in here. That's deeply encouraging to all of us who need a friend to encourage us in our faith. Then they go where they're supposed to go. They go to Scripture and prayer together with their friends. The bulk of their prayer is a quotation of Psalm 2, about which they find fulfillment in what had just happened. The kings and the rulers were arrayed together against Jesus, but it was not outside of God's plan and His purpose. Then in light of God's predestinating plan, they pray for boldness and healing and were filled with the Holy Spirit. Let's just unpack that response for a moment. First, prayer and Scripture brought them true confidence. Opposition is not evidence of failure or doing it wrong. Jesus told them they would get pushed back. David's Psalms told them they would get pushed back. Psalm 118 told them that they would get pushed back. The end of Psalm 2, though, says this, "'Kiss the Son, lest He become angry. Blessed are all those who take refuge in Him.'" Our confidence comes when we take refuge in the one who has promised to protect us, in the one who has already won the victory over all the vain plots of the Gentiles and the rulers. Godly confidence is not arrogance. It's trust in the Word of God and the plan of God. And that confidence gave them boldness to keep going. Look again at verse 29, Lord. Look upon their threats and grant your servants to continue to speak your word word with all boldness while you stretch out your hand to heal. God, you look upon their threats. God, I can't control their threats. 
I can't control what they're going to do. It's like the idea of a pitcher who looks at first base. It's God and God alone who can handle other people's threats. All I can do is keep going forward with the gospel. Lord, you can only, you're the only one who can deal with their saber rattling. Please just help us to stay on task with the good news. There's a really cheap and wrong way of doing church and church growth that thrives in controversy. There's a cheap way of growing the church. It thrives in controversy. Think about it. The apostles didn't go back and create a plan to infiltrate the Sanhedrin. They weren't preparing for a fight. They were not gearing up to have a big debate and prove them elders wrong. No. In other words, they weren't concerned with winning the culture war. It's not what they were worried about. They knew the culture war has already been won. When Jesus rose from the dead, the victory was finalized. Now all we do is preach the gospel until he returns again. Guys, let's not stoke the fire. It gets us off mission. I can spend all my energy getting mad at those people out there and none of it praying for them. That's why we need to also not play the victim card, right? Playing the victim card is a way of taking your perceived injustice and weaponizing it against the other side. It's the same thing. It's exhausting. Look at verse 30. While you stretch out your hand to heal... Think about the posture of their prayer. Lord, help us to speak your words so that your healing will come, not just to us, to them, right? Lord, help us to speak your words even to those who persecute us. What does Jesus say to do as his followers? Love your enemies, pray for those who persecute you. Or Paul, embodying those words, bless those who persecute you, bless and do not curse them. Our path forward in the midst of opposition to the gospel is simply said but done with difficulty. Stay on the path of the gospel. Stay straight ahead. Don't veer to the left. Don't veer to the right. Stay on course. Now, there are three practical ways as we close that churches can veer off course. The first way a church veers off course is by cloistering. We huddle together in safety with our people. We refuse to rub shoulders with people out in the world. We decide that the best way to make Christians is by procreation and not evangelism. Now, procreation is a great way of making Christians. It is. But it can't be the way that we don't evangelize. The second way churches veer off the gospel path is by fighting the opposition. They tend to make mistakes by thinking that boldness is really vainglory. They'll forget that the fight is not against flesh and blood, but the idolatries that stand behind people. We don't fight against enemies that we've declared war on. We don't declare war on anybody. We only have enemies because they've declared war on us, and then our response is to bless. We're called to be peacemakers, not cultural warriors. This type of church will forget that we're called to long for healing to come for everybody. The third way churches veer off the gospel path is because they shrink from opposition and maybe even ally with it. Boldness will be turned into fear, love to flattery. They'll seek to diminish the cutting edge of the gospel, excuse cultural sins, turn a blind eye to idolatry. They'll lose sight of God's calling to be different 
and then they will not be salt and not be light of the earth. Friends, let's avoid these three errors. In the face of opposition, we're called just to stay the gospel course. There's going to be obstacles that come up, and we're going to need to scale them. We need to ask the Holy Spirit for boldness and conviction to keep going. We're going to need to avoid fighting back. We'll want to trust God's plan that He has something better for us. Sometimes we will have to defend ourselves, but always we're called for God's Word and His healing to go out from us so that more and more people will come to know the good news of Jesus. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, we ask for Your help. We ask for Your help because we so often veer to the left or to the right. We so often cloister or run away. But Lord, help us to thread that needle of a bold witness that truly cares for others. Lord, we know we are not sufficient for that. Holy Spirit, we cannot do that but by Your grace. And so we ask, help us please. Help us to do this as a church and so bring honor to Christ who is our Savior and in whose name we pray.